The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jonathan Ernie. Jonathan is a partner at Shepard Mullen, a law firm here in Washington, D.C., and uh, today we're going to talk about all things government contracts, uh, looking back back a little bit at the year 2018 and some of the stuff that went on there, uh, just some of the highlights. And uh, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me back, Roger. Well, always a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation. <laughs> as as I. I. Yeah, as, as I always do. Um, so let's kick off... Um, one of the big focuses, and I'm just going to use the term modernization generally and with GSA and, and schedules modernization, which I think encompasses Section 846, and we'll get to that uh, as we have this conversation. But uh, schedules modernization, GSA um, had a big industry day meeting. Back um, in December. Um, well, actually, and your your organization, the coalition, had a big event where this was a key element as well, right? At, the last event, right at the fall conference. Right. Yeah, we had a couple of sessions about that, both a, a big general session on schedules modernization, and then some breakouts that focused on aspects of it. So, and then GSA followed up with its own industry day um, that uh, I was fortunate enough to participate in as a panelist. Um, so let's start there. And, you know, from your perspective, is there, you know, what's the need for schedules modernization? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, look, I'm I'm all for modernization. I mean, you and I, Roger, are modern guys, right? right. I mean, and even sure, though our sure. teenage children would yeah, dramatically. Can you, can you help me with my phone? There? <laughs> my, my, my two teenage daughters would totally disagree that I just oh, said yeah. I'm a modern guy. But yeah, yeah so I, I think modernization is a useful, I think, target and goal for any organization, GSA, I think is in particular need of it because so many of its practices are legacy practices, right? They've been going on for so long. And it's not always GSA's fault. I mean, you just just to throw one quick one out there, you take you take the country of origin rules, like the, the Trade Agreements Act, right? That right. still governs GSA contracts, yet it's a 1970s-era product-focused rule um, that's now being applied in the context of services and solutions. So I, I don't I don't say that to blame GSA, right? It's a statute and a treaty, but it does highlight some of the legacy issues that GSA is dealing with, right? And um, and I, that's a good way to put it, legacy, because you think about the schedules. The schedules, um, you know, go back, you know, f- to the to the fifties and even beyond I, I that. Think I think nineteen forty nine technically. Yeah, nineteen forty nine <laughs> and then even before that there were some Yes. Yeah, you know, reading, reading your book, John, Jonathan. <laughs> oh, so you're the one. Yeah. You're the one I cited your book and talked about <laughs> even back in the you know, a hundred years ago yeah, yeah. there was a some form of schedule type contract yep. that the federal government was entering into. So <laughs> So and maybe we're not talking about <laughs> legacies from a hundred years ago, but no, but perhaps maybe not a price a, reduction clause. Well, <laughs> well, that's another good example, right? So yeah. if you take the you look at the TAA and you and you legacy that back to just to change it into a verb, right? Legacy right. that back to the seventies. You take the price reductions clause. You can really put that back, actually before the eighties. But in eighty four, there was certainly kind of the 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 precursor of what we have today. 
Uh, so, so you have you have all these you have all these clauses. A lot of them are are outdated. A lot of them are struggling to to fit in this new world, which is dominated by services and right. solutions. Mm-hmm. But but it's not it's not just it's not just the clauses. You got you got some old practices that don't make sense. I mean, one, I, I you and I have talked about on countless occasions, and I'm sure we'll talk about it today. But it's these these distinctions between the various schedules. Yes. Right, a schedule, a schedule eighty four, which purportedly is for security, a schedule fifty one, which purportedly is for hardware, but those two things overlap tremendously. Right, but never in GSA world, never the two shall meet. Which, right? which, when you consider how how broadly stocked hardware stores are, it's yes. it's really hard to understand that distinction. But, but yeah, so. And it's not just in that area. There are other areas like, say, a certain service. Is it a professional service? Is it a Mobis-type service? Is it – if the service involves medical data, is it a VA-type service? So you right. have all these distinctions that – And then the security, too, just a yeah, yeah. final example is like the IT, IT Schedule 70 overlaps with a- 84 as well. Absolutely. So so you have – again, here we are with these legacy distinctions. And, and perhaps at the beginning there was a need – Maybe for specialization to distinguish. Okay, you can buy product X through Schedule Y. You, you look today, and, you, and it's not getting you anything. So, so th- these are just some of the things I think GSA is struggling with and trying to modernize. And and I think I think they're making some progress. Right. So, do you is it your sense contractors um, agree with that? Is modernization? It's about time, and you know, consolidation of the schedules into sort of a single Uber schedule is. Well, Makes some sense, and maybe it's not one, but I mean, the goal, the vision sure, is one, sure. right? But maybe it's five. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah. So I think, I mean, there, there are two parts of your question. The, the first part is, d- does modernization make sense? So I, I speak to, you know, I, I, I represent a lot of different companies in a lot of different industries, and, and and far and away, they all agree modernization makes sense. I mean, it, it's kind of like who's against <laughs> modernization, right, right. right? Maybe my dad, who still uses a flip phone, but but everyone else I know. Right, very He's much the in- other one. Right, okay. <laughs> yes, he actually does use a flip phone, by the way. Um, but to, to the second point about the consolidation of the schedules, uh, as I talk to clients, I talk to companies out there. Far and away, they agree that makes sense as well. So, so th- there, you, everyone agrees on the general modernization. But I'm also finding most people agree on this on this more specific solution, and it's because it's because they they, they struggle. To work with these fake distinctions, like I mean, the the one I mentioned is the one that I've I actually have some experience with, which is this distinction between fifty one and eighty four, uh, hardware and and security, uh, security right. right? And and it, it's not good for the contractors, and it's not good for the government purchasers either. I mean, what, why should they have to worry if if they want to buy X, Y, and Z? Why should they have to worry that X is on one schedule, Y is on another, and Z is on another? And do they have to find three different companies, or can they find one? Now, as to whether there's some benefit of— I guess you could look yeah. at it this way. Just like you think about a, a mall or a store. You could go into one store, <clears throat> buy all the stuff you need if it's on the shelves or whatever, or you know, on the schedule— and you've done one transaction, you don't. But I mean, you know, but the separation of it means you have to go to three different stores yeah, and, to get your stuff. It takes more time, costs more money, right? right. It makes so. I I think that's right, but I think there's also there's there's potentially some argument that maybe you don't want to go to one. Like I, I can understand an argument that 
sometimes we want to go to a place, like we want to go to a store that has expertise. You know, when I want to buy my when I want to buy my electronic component, you know, maybe I want to go to an electronic store rather than a general department store. Um, what I want to buy, I mean, I, I live in Bethesda. We have this great hardware store down the road, right? When I need to go and buy a certain, you know, fitting or something for the house, my dad would be very impressed. I just said fitting. I don't even know what one is. But if I needed to buy one, like, you know, maybe I want to go to a specialty store. So I get the argument that's, that somehow building up this commodity expertise can be useful. But I think we can do so in a way without so many fake distinctions and right. schedules. That's sort of like, to me, that's a GSA, you think of that. They do need expertise like sure. that, right? Sure, Does that Does that reflect it in how the, how the agency's organized um, to support customers? But can the, you know, the, the flip side is the contracts don't, it can be more efficient to have them organized as a single schedule with the back office support. Right. That, 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 I think that's exactly the point. The, the distinction you need can be on GSA's side with respect to the commodity expertise. You don't need it on the customer-facing side. So, so in short, I'm, I'm in favor of GSA's effort to consolidate the schedules. So, and, and you know, from your sense, can the, when is this supposed to, I mean, the goal is to get it in place. By 2020, I mean, that- I, I I don't think I have any more inside info than anyone else on this. I, G- GSA says begin the process January 2020. They think, for the life of me, I don't understand why this would take five years, but they, they claim it's a five year process. Um, I, I that surprised me, but right. It's interesting too that, and you know this, that um, it's sort of back to the future too a little bit. <laughs> like they had the th- a thing called the corporate schedule yeah. at one point, yeah. which was this concept exactly back in uh, the late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, that's a great reference because Back to the Future is a terrific movie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and you know what, we're Jonathan. We're up on the break. My guest today is Jonathan Erney. He's a partner of Shepard Mullen. And we're talking about uh, schedules modernization. When we come back, we'll talk about Section 846, transactional data reporting, you know, maybe a little price reduction clause. So, so who knows? We'll I'm, do... I'm going to hang on. Okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, <clears throat> this is Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Jonathan Erney. He is a partner at Shepard Mullen. We're talking government contracts. And right now, we've, we've, we've the first segment, we talked a little bit about uh, schedules modernization. Right now, I want to continue that, uh, Jonathan, just talk a little bit about, you know, so you have this goal to consolidate schedules, re- re- eliminate those artificial barriers, those scope determinations that are driving customers, I think, a bit crazy. And I yeah. know the contractors. Sure. Um, you know, but also you had other the order level materials are the direct cost rule, which allows you to do, you know complete solutions under schedules, um, and you had transactional data report, reporting up and running. You know, is the next shoe to drop? You they've got it moving to eliminate the price reduction clause. <laughs> if you're really talking about schedules modernization, well, I, I mean, from from your lips to God's ears, as they say, oh. um, I. There have been attempts to eliminate the price reductions clause since the time I started practicing law. Now, granted, I'm a lot younger than you, but um, yes, it's been, a lot younger. It's been, you know, it, it, this this has been uh, a long time in coming, and and it keeps being chipped away at, as as we know, right? I mean, transactional data reporting was really the big big chip where they just got rid of the price reduction clause in total as the kind of quid pro quo for sharing transactional data with the government. 
Right. So that, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a big, big change. Uh, we saw it being attacked, the clause, by not only industry, but by the government on the Blue Ribbon, what was it, the Blue Ribbon uh, the panel? MAS Blue Ribbon yeah. panel about, yeah. about, that was the first Bush, no, the W's administration, yeah. Yeah. Bush administration. So, you know, so th- there aren't, other than the inspectors general, there's not a lot of people speaking in favor of the price reductions clause. So I, I think what we've realized is that competition solves most of the problem that the price reductions clause was intended to solve. Uh, and I think ultimately we'll be rid of it. But contractors need to know if you have an opt-in into TDR, you still have the PRC. You're still beholden to those rules. And the and the IG and plaintiff's lawyers and DOJ, they all are very quick to come after contractors for violating the price reductions clause. So it, it remains a very high-risk yeah. item. And I think one of the things, too, I think, Another chip away at it, I think, a little bit is going to be the the schedule's consolidation because, uh, as I understand it, when GSA for a company that is opted in on one of their schedule contracts for um, TDR, and then they have other contracts where they got a PRC, you know, if you consolidate all those contracts, as I understand the way GSA is going to go about it, you can opt in to TDR for all those contracts. So. So you don't have to have dual systems in place. And that that makes perfect sense because right now, let's say you're a company with a, a, a 51 and – well, we'll stick with our example, a 51 and an 84. Right. So I think – right. so yeah. you opt in and you're 51, but 84 doesn't have TDR. So you still need that entire infrastructure in place. Makes no sense at all, right? If it's good enough for 51 – Right. Why not 84? Especially since they overlap so right, much, right? right. It, makes, it makes no sense at all. And, right. and so I think with the consolidation, it only makes sense to allow an opt-in on one to cover the totality of your company. Because if not, you're not getting the benefit of your bargain, right? Your bargain was, hey, government, I will share data with you if I get relief from these two particularly burdensome clauses, price reductions clause and the commercial sales practice format. If you're not getting the full benefit of that bargain – Sharing your TDR, sharing your data doesn't make any sense. Right. Last thing to mention on that, I'll move yeah. on to Section yeah. 846, is you know, with uh, this year's NDAA, they included the language for, quote, they call it the unpriced schedule, where you don't uh, negotiate and establish like contract rates for services at the contract level, and that's authority that's granted to GSA for the schedule contracts. So if you're not going to negotiate a contract level price, there's going to be no requirement or need for a PRC at all. So so that's another thing that will eventually chip away at it. Right. It, <laughs> if nothing else, it strongly suggests that people in Congress don't think the price reductions clause is necessary, right? at least not in the services area. Right. And, and lastly on that is that GSA, at some point GSA has got to answer the question that I've asked and many have asked is, is should it be uh, uh, as a requirement of having a government contract that you have to agree to terms that limit your ability to co- compete in the private sector. That's what the PRC well, ultimately That's a question does. you and I have been asking publicly for years and years, yeah. right? Yep. So, Jonathan, Section 846, um, you know, the e-commerce platform, you know, listeners know that GSA and OMB are in the midst of, you know, the second year, the second phase, uh, the year-long sort of market research uh, look at e-commerce and what's out there in the commercial marketplace. Um, and GSA is getting ready to issue its report coming up in March. Um, they had an RFI and the industry day they had back in December also included 
you know, a whole afternoon session talking about e-commerce. Right. Um, just your thoughts on where things are headed and what, what, what you're seeing. Yeah. So this, this obviously is, you know, taken up a, a lot, a lot of press, right? This is, this is probably the biggest deal to hit government contracting since I, I would say without exaggeration back in the FASA Farad days, right? This is, uh, this is, this is a big deal. Um, so among the groups that are actively watching this, there, there's one, I'm just going to point them out because I think they, they speak for a pretty broad segment of the, of, of the audience. Uh, the National Association of Wholesalers and Distributors, that they, you know, they have a working group on this and, and they, they are still, that group seems to be strongly opposed to the path GSA is going down. Some of the things you see them citing as the pr- ongoing problems, they, they cite their concern with a with a marketplace provider uh, using third party data, using the data from the other companies on them on the platform. They're concerned with lack of competition in their view. They're concerned with inadequate transparency in GSA's process, uh, and they're also concerned with kind of balancing ease of ordering with other legislative priorities like treaty obligations and right. transparency. Trade yeah, 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 yeah. TA is a good example. So, so I, I think just just using that as I, I, I think I think that's that's reflective of of where you see the arguments around this ongoing process. Yeah, and it's interesting. What you know, one of the things that um, we have yet to see, and it'll be interesting to see if it's in GSA's report. And whether, and actually, I wonder whether GSA should issue a draft report and give the public an opportunity to comment on it rather than issuing a final report, you know, and completely sort of, you know, setting, you know, making determinations without giving people an opportunity to take a look at what they're actually determining, right, first. Um, but even there, you know, the idea that um, we have no sense that whether GSA is actually reviewed you know, the commercial marketplace from a terms and conditions perspective, uh, what those terms and conditions of a marketplace provider or e-procurement provider or a e-commerce mm-hmm. provider, whether any of those three different types that they identified, what those terms are, what they look like, what they mean, what they, they mean for, for competition in the federal space. All those things seem to me are th- areas based on the industry day we didn't really have any answers to. Yeah, I, and I think they'd also be wise to read, frankly, your, your blogs. I, I think I think they should read. The, well, thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate no, but, that. But um, I'm I'm serious. Like you you have over the course of this debate, uh, put out a lot of thoughtful pieces on this, and, and I, I you know I think I think anyone, regardless of what side you are on on this debate, as to whether you're an e-commerce person, an e-marketplace person, or an e-procurement person, right in there. And from the industry today, you can tell there are people in each of those camps. Yes, yeah, right, oh, sure. But I think I think anyone should should be should be reading some, and answering some of those questions you put out there. Right, and and it's interesting too. And uh, I think you know the the way, and I think there is a there's also a, a very big concern in the community out there that GSA sort of proof of concept, the next thing that they're going to tackle. Um, where GSA identified when they didn't have to under the statute, the statute is very broad, but they identified three those three different types, e-procurement, e-marketplace, and e-commerce, where their proof of concept is only going to look at the e-marketplace and seek contracts for e-marketplace provider uh, or providers. So I don't understand how you can do a proof of concept and validate and assess 
three different models by only taking a look at and you know contracting with one of those models. It doesn't seem to compute to me. Um, I think GSA needs to take a step back there and look at trying to incorporate all. And I would say it if they were just looking at the procurement one or the e-commerce one. That doesn't. It's the process, not the right. and, not and, the particular one they've chosen. And I think that's the right way to say it because I look. I have you know I have I have clients all, all over the map on on which of these three things that they they like. So I don't you know I I don't have a particularly strong view, but but I do have a process view, right? In my and you're exactly right in the process view. If you're if you're testing three things, you, you can't just test one of them. I um so I, I as, as you know, I'm the federal monitor over the New Orleans Police Department, and sure, and we you know whenever we test anything involving the New Orleans Police Department, we we, we can't just test one approach, right? We, we have to test all the approaches because you got to figure out not only if the one you're testing is good, but if perhaps other ones are better. Again, they'll they'll ultimately ultimately make the decision as to what's best for the government, what's best for industry, etc. But but I think everyone has an interest in the integrity of the process. Jonathan, we're up on the break. So when we come back in the next segment, let's start talking a little bit about bid protests in the year that was in 2018. My guest today is Jonathan Ernie. He is a partner at Shepherd and Mullen, and this is Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf. On the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Jonathan Ernie, partner at Shepherd Mullen. And uh, we spent the first two segments talking a lot about GSA schedule, Section 846. Um, but now let's turn to the really sexy stuff. Right? <laughs> Right, Jonathan? Yes. Uh, bid protests. Um, yes, again, I try to tell my wife that stuff's sexy, but yeah, yeah. yet another person who doesn't believe me. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> so um, um, what was the year uh, 2018? What did it look like with regard to bid protests? Well, you know, it was it was similar to many other years that, that there were a lot of them. Yes, of <laughs> right? course. It, yeah. it, it remains a, a very important channel of redress for uh, companies that – don't think they were fairly treated in the procurement process. Uh, we we have GAO's numbers, right? So so we we know numerically how it was for GAO. So let's see, in 2018, GAO closed 2,642 cases. Now now, what's very interesting about the, these data are that bid protests are far more successful than one would think. Right, you 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 kind of naturally think that bid protests are always an uphill battle, and and they are clearly an uphill battle. However, uh, GAO's reported effectiveness rate, and to be clear, what that means is of the cases with a reported decision, how many of them, or sorry, of the cases GAO handled, yes. how many of them either resulted in a successful reported decision or agency corrective action, right? And it's it's forty four percent. That's that's an extremely high number, and and what it tells me, frankly, is that is that agencies do make mistakes, and you know as yeah. do as do as do contractors, as do all humans. So when when I talk to clients about potentially protesting, I you know I I I don't advocate for protests because they are still complicated and, and often expensive and often an uphill battle. But but where you weren't treated well, the data suggest that you do have a very real opportunity for redress here. So in in that <clears throat> agency the taking corrective action, that's the vast majority of the of the 
Success. Yes. That's the yeah. Vast well, majority, so I right? actually I don't versus I don't have decisions. those data, but I believe you're correct. I, yeah. I I'm almost almost certain you're correct that that the corrective action is a bigger part of the number. Now, corrective action doesn't mean that you as the protester were just handed the award, right? Corrective action would still be in that effective success bucket, even if ultimately you still didn't get the contract, right? You had the contract, you, you didn't have the contract, you protested, the agency took corrective action, and they then awarded the contract still not to you, right? That, sure. that is an effective protest, even though you don't get what you want. Right. 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 Yeah. You're, at least you're getting a second yeah, a, chance. Yeah, a second right. chance. Right. right. And what we, what most companies want is, is they just want a fair chance. Like I, I, I have countless situations where, where we look at a procurement that we lost, my clients lost, and, and we decide not to protest. And you know, where the agency does a good job and where the agency is transparent in its decisions, then, then that will often counsel us not to protest. We don't like wasting money. But it's situations where the agency is not transparent or where you see these clear errors in the record. It's those situations where you just you just want your fair chance. Right. And when you say transparent, are you talking about debriefings? Yeah. I mean, a but lot also of, the negotiation process. Yeah, too, I, th- I think from from start to end, but especially in the de- debriefing process. Right. So think of it this way. You're you know, you're a contractor. Your team had just spent the better part of a month or, or many months putting a proposal together. And then you lose to your surprise. You think you're the best, and the agency won't give you any explanation as to why. Well, a lot of those companies just protest so their lawyers can see the documents to understand if there's a protest or not. Uh, but it's the agency has discretion in how much information it's going to show you right. at the debriefing. Yes, right. Just a lot of agencies show almost nothing, and that just gets everyone's suspicions up. And I think leads to more protests. Right, and isn't there the di- the human dynamic in that? Right, if you're working, f- if you're the proposal manager or the executive who's responsible for that particular, you know, capture effort, and <clears throat> you don't have an explanation as to why you lost for your superiors, right? I mean, that just kind of drives. We've got to find a- out. Absolutely, need, right. And when you add to that, Roger, the this the consolidation of so many procurements. These numbers are getting so large, you almost can't can't not protest sometimes. And and I think the, and the agencies, at least the better agencies, they they understand this. Like those that protest period is just part of business. Uh, if it's handled professionally, that they, they don't get upset. They go through the process. You win or lose, and everyone moves on. So it it actually is a very it is a very well working process within government in terms of accountability. Okay, so any yeah. interesting protests you wanted to yeah. chat about? Yeah, I mean th- there were there were a couple of a couple of very interesting ones, um, and and frankly, I think these are probably I, I, we don't have time for me to go into that much detail, but probably useful reading for some of the listeners. Sure. Um, very interesting case on Veterans Administration preferences. So most people listening are probably familiar with the Kingdomware case involving the veterans' preferences that said uh, the VA must apply this rule of two. But subsequent to Kingdomware, there are, there are a couple of other cases. One is called PDS Consultants versus United States. Now, full disclosure here, my colleagues David Gallagher and Emily Terrio uh, litigated that case uh, successfully. If it wasn't successful, I wouldn't be using it as, as an example here well, on your course, radio show. Of course. <laughs> um, but but it's a, it, was a, it was a wonderful case, and, and, uh, and it highlighted how the veterans rule can take precedence over the Ability One rule. Uh, and how VA has to honor its commitments 
within its statutory authority. So I think if you operate in that set-aside world, I think the PDS case is a good one to read. Uh, I think another uh, another another interesting one to read is um, there's actually two in this bucket. One is Dell Federal versus the United States, and one is FMS Investment versus the United States. The reason I put those together, Roger, is they're both challenges to agency corrective action. And we, we all know it's very hard for a contractor to challenge an agency's corrective action. What I mean by that is is let's say you're in the middle of a protest and the agency decides that as its corrective action, it's going to redo the whole procurement. And, you know, and you're sitting there saying, wait a minute, that's, that's not good for me. Uh, right. It's very hard to challenge that. Agency has significant discretion. So in this first case in Dell Federal, the agency took broad corrective action like that. The Court of Federal Claims actually ruled in favor of the protester, challenging that, saying, no, agency, you, that's overbroad. And then the Federal Circuit came in on top of it and said, "Uh uh-uh, agencies have great discretion with their corrective action. Agency, you win. So so that just kind of reaffirmed the common rule that it's very hard to challenge. But but then there is this outlier there that I love, and I'll also give full disclosure on this one because my colleague Townsend Bourne and I litigated this one. Uh, Townsend was in the lead. I was was carrying her bag, as they say. Okay. which you're in a wonderful position when you're when you're she, she's a partner now, but my former associate when I get to carry her bag, which is very very cool. Yeah. Uh, and so, and in this case here, uh, there was multiple contractors that challenged Department of Education corrective action. DOED tried to redo a procurement, and this one was successful. And the Court of Federal Claims said, "No, you that that is not appropriate corrective action." So we do still have some of the, the this this possibility to make such a challenge, even though it's very uphill. Interesting. So, great discretion, but yeah, yeah, great, yeah. right, great discretion, but not not unfettered discretion. I think right. is the way to think about it. And then the, the last one I just wanted to mention again. I I, I guess I not surprisingly picked picked three successes for my firm here. I I apologize to be sounding so self serving, but those were the ones most in my mind. Obviously, okay. But there was a, yep. a, an interesting case. It was a. Uh, it was a, uh, an, an MSC versus United States protest at the Court of Federal Claims. And that one's worth reading for two reasons. One, it was a challenge to the impact of GSA's decision to change the way BPA holders can, outs- can, can source products. In other words, how you sell to the government a product that you do not have on your schedule yet. And GSA changed the rules on, on that sort of sourcing. Um, MSC protested the impact of that on an ongoing solicitation. The court ruled against, against MSC in that one, but, but what's particularly interesting was that there was a timeliness element to the, to the holding, and the court reaffirmed this rule called the blue and gray rule, which is what, what, what it really says is just the like... blue and gold? The blue, blue and gold. Thank right. you, blue and gray. I'm, I'm, going, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm Civil, thinking War Civil War. Yeah. yeah, blue and gold rule. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it, just, it really kind of brings the Court of Federal Claims in line with GAO that says, hey, if you know of potentially um, problematic elements, you need to protest those before the award. Right. And so that's, that's worth reading as well. There's also there's a very interesting discussion on that sourcing rule I mentioned. Right. So, Jonathan, you know what? We're, we're already up at the break. So when we come back, let's just you – know, there's some takeaways, I know, lessons learned from – Bid protests that uh, we can go over a little bit, and then we can look a little bit, at, you know, for the last segment on the enforcement area and what went sure. on there in 2018. My guest today is Jonathan Erney. He is a partner at Shepard Mullen, 
Uh, I am Roger Waldron, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. My guest today is Jonathan Erne, partner at Shepard Mullen. We're talking government contracts. Um, and Jonathan, we took the break. We were talking about bid protests. Um, some quick lessons learned or thoughts that companies need to, you know, best practices, sure. whatever you want to call it, companies need to think about uh, in the context of the bid protest and procurement process. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think, Roger, any of these are – are you know brain surgery, but um, but these these are some lessons that just continue to come out of these cases, even even to, to this day. One, I know it sounds like a no brainer, but submit all required information. If you're a contractor and you're bidding, and the solicitation calls for something, submit it. Not submitting it, even if it seems minor, is enough to get you thrown out of the competition, and and that that flows from some of the cases I mentioned already. Similarly, read the solicitation carefully. You will be held accountable for what's in the solicitation, and the courts and GAO are very unforgiving. Uh, in the labor area, make sure you're proposing qualified labor, especially in the GSA schedules world. Uh, if the if the solicitation calls for X years experience and X years education, don't think that you have the liberty to change that around. Uh, <laughs> submit your proposal on time, uh, and submit your protest if there is going to be one on time. Uh, the timeliness rules are really, really critical. There have been famous cases where a matter of seconds was the difference between uh, a timely proposal and not. And as JO always says, late is late. So I think those are a couple of easy takeaways. Right. Those are like fundamentals. Yeah, right? ab- absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so in the enforcement area, um, can you talk a little bit about what we saw last year or, sure. and where, where things are headed? Yeah, and it's interesting because I, so I talk so you know I, I lead at Shepherd Mullen. I lead the government contracts, and investigations, and white collar practice group. So I talk to white collar lawyers all the time, uh, in my firm and in other firms. And and I think I think when you talk to a broad section of white collar lawyers, they'll tell you that regulatory enforcement generally across the country is down. Right, fewer fewer FBI investigations, fewer SEC investigations, fewer DOJ investigations. Um, and and I've I've talked to people all over the country on this. I, I sit on some some compliance panels, and 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 everyone's saying the same thing. So, but but that's not to say that government enforcers are not at work. And I think government contractors continue to need to be careful because there are areas that that continue to be the focus of government inquiry. Right, and the areas that we see that I think would be most interesting to commercial items companies, the type. The type that would be a member of the coalition, for example, sure. right, mm-hmm. would be still see country of origin investigations. So, Trade Agreements Act, Buy American Act. Uh, we still see this is an interesting one because we didn't used to see it, but we see investigations into what I call subcontractor oversight. So, you know, you're a prime, your responsibility for your subs, and if you're not overseeing those subs adequately, you can see yourself being brought into an investigation for their mistakes. Uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know you DOD contractors know that a lot because DCAA does that regularly. Yes. But but we're even seeing it outside of the DOD realm. Uh a big one we're seeing more of is uh is the small business rules and I say that from this perspective. Um we've seen large businesses 
be investigated for their dealings with small businesses and whether the relationship has created what we call affiliation, whether the large business and the small business are too closely aligned and thus the small business loses its small business status. So we, right. we, we, we've seen multiple cases in this affiliation realm. Uh, what do you think is driving that? Is it just – Well, the small business has a, you know, has a strong lobby and, and I think legitimate small businesses get upset when they look and they see a competitor that they do not think is legitimate. So that's one reason. Um, I, I, frankly, I think some of it is just because it's a very complex area of the law and – like in corporate transactions, for example, if you don't have a gov- government contracts person on the team, you're apt to miss these nuanced issues. So some of these things fly under the radar, and then they're picked up in an audit. But I think there are a number of reasons why. Then it why probably to some, maybe some of it's like the government has success in a particular case, and right, oh, let's look at another. Right, one. that's all it takes sometimes. Right, yeah. I, I do. I, I've seen over the course of my career, though, a lot of you know, a lot of corporate transactions that. That the, the, it's it's really this this will this I, I I'm biased in this because I'm a government contracts lawyer, but I see corporate people doing the due diligence, but not have a government contracts person on the team. That's a mistake, right? I I, th- I think it's a big mistake, and I think it's a mistake that companies end up paying for later. But it's those type it's these type of issues, these these complicated affiliation type issues that can be overlooked. Um, we're st- still seeing pricing price reduction clause CSP enforcement investigations. Um, and there, there, there are more, but I think that those are those are some highlights of where we're still seeing the government focused. And and remember, the government is continuing to to aggressively use its uh, its False Claims Act powers. Uh, DOJ just put out their numbers not long ago, and see the 2018 False Claims Act recoveries were 2.8 billion dollars. That's that's a big number. Uh, so. You know, is most of that where is that? Is that healthcare? Most what? Yeah, abs- absolutely. It's it's interesting. So I I think I even jotted it down. I think uh, yeah, two point five billion of the two point eight billion were from the healthcare industry. Uh, another interesting breakdown is six hundred and forty five of those cases were key TAM lawsuits. In other words, whistleblower cases. Whereas one hundred twenty two of those lawsuits were direct government cases without a whistleblower. Um, you know, I was I, I was gonna gonna ask you a, 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 a trivia question, but uh, how much money do you think has come in through the False Claims Act recovery since 1986, when the law was really, um, you know, was really changed? But uh, I'm, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Uh, but it's 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 40 billion dollars in those cases where the government has has intervened, 2.5 billion where the government has not intervened. So a lot a lot of money goes goes through the False Claims Act, a lot of money, a lot of revenue being collected, and companies need to be very careful, you know, for this among other reasons. Right, and I guess yeah, that part of is it is it when the go- the government intervenes with all its resources, there's more of a legitimate. I mean, the government assesses a case, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and, so that it is it, it it shouldn't be surprising why so much more money is collected when the government intervenes than when it doesn't. Right, the government intervenes. All of a sudden, then you have the government resources, as you say, Roger. Right, you get your government investigators, your government lawyers, uh, and so so that makes that makes perfect sense. And also, the government has done done a lot of diligence. So at least the government would argue that intervenes that it intervenes on the cases that have more there there. Uh, you know, we we I, I and others in industry might might argue that's not always the case, but the government certainly would argue that. 
the, the, the other thing to remember on this False Claims Act world is that the, the government advertises these cases or it promotes these cases is dealing with, and this is a quote from the press release, right? Unscrupulous contractors and deceitful contractors. And that's how the government describes these these numbers, right? That's how it describes this 2.8 billion of recoveries. But but in truth, since the False Claims Act is not tied to that mental state element of deceitfulness, right. the False Claims Act covers recklessness. So it covers things like your your institu- your infrastructure problems, lack of policies, lack of training. You you might have had no deceitfulness in you at all, but you still get can get wrapped up in the false claims. And I think that's important for people to realize because it's very easy for a contractor to say, hey, I'm not deceitful, but that's really not the focus of the False Claims Act. Right. It's and just it, the focus of the press release. <laughs> yeah, and it, it it makes it sound like they're really right. out there doing their and, job, right? Right. And I'm not saying there aren't some of those companies out there, but but I look I've been doing this right, I've been doing this twenty five years or so, and far and away the false claims act cases are not deceitful people. Far and away, there are companies that just get caught up in complicated rules. Uh, you know, maybe for some companies, revenue is outpaced infrastructure or what have you. Yes. But it's very rarely deceitful, unscrupulous people. Right. There are some, but they're the minority. Right. So, Jonathan, you know what? What? We're at the end of the show. Oh, we had, we had so much more to talk about, Roger. Well, you'll have to come back. <laughs> I'll come back. All right. I want to thank my guest today, Jonathan Ernie. He's a partner at Shepherd Mullen. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.